I'll just quickly tell you my, um, really a shortened version of uh, the health problem I had. It was in uh, the fall of 2011, and I, was, uh, con I contracted lymphoma. And it was such a raging lymphoma. My um, doctor, who was the head of um, bone marrow transplants and hematology at UT Southwestern, said that he will take my PET scan, and every time there's a new group of residents coming through his department, he will show them my PET scan. And he'll say, now, that's lymphoma. And, and he said it was so bad that once they um, got the diagnosis um, down in detail, I was in the hospital two hours later. And I had to do chemotherapy, of course, um, but I couldn't do it as an outpatient like most people do. This was so bad that I had to be in the hospital for a week getting continuous chemotherapy of different types. And then I go home for two weeks and try to recover in time to come back and then do another week in the hospital out back and forth six times. And so um, it ended up being a lot worse than that. Instead of six hospital admittances, I had 11 and I was in the hospital 130 something days by the time it was over. So it was bad and after, after most of the chemotherapy was finished, I, my doctor said I needed a bone marrow transplant. And so my brother donated his stem cells, and I had a transplant, which means you stay in the hospital for 30 days in isolation, and they give you these super bad, I always thought I had the worst chemotherapy, but they give you more chemotherapies that's so bad that it burns out the bone marrow in your bones intentionally. And so you know it's bad when they give you chemotherapy and they make you eat ice chips during it so it won't damage your mouth. So very severe. When the bone marrow transplant was over, the doctor said, you know, we got all of it except three little spots. And he said, because of that, we know those three spots are chemo-resistant, and the only way to kill them that we know of is to use your own immune system. Now, I didn't have my immune system anymore. It was my brother's. My brother's blood type became my blood type. His immune system became my immune system. And so they said, we'll just jack it up really hard with a drug called interferon, and we're going to see if your immune system, that's really your brother's, can kill those three spots. And they said, now beware, because it's going to be so ramped up that you will probably have, that new immune system will probably attack your organs as well. And that's exactly what happened. And so at first, the immune system went after my skin. I had boils from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet all over, all over. Uh, my liver was very distressed, attacked my eyes. I had three different ocular diseases because of that. This is my friendly immune system coming after me. And then it hit my gut. And the doctors had always said, we're okay as long as it doesn't get to your gut, but it did. So I had diarrhea that would not stop. And what was coming out of me was the lining of my GI tract, which will kill you in most cases. And so there's only a 5% chance of living when that happens. And so I, I was in a bad place. And so I was in the hospital all the way from the 4th of July to Labor Day, trying to hang on. The, the doctors don't have a lot to do, but they just gave me huge amounts of steroids. And the steroids eventually worked and stopped it, but it damaged me so that when I got out of the hospital, I had severe osteoporosis, 
my pancreas was damaged, so I had, now I was a diabetic, and my, my adrenal glands were, were hurt. It just went on and on. There's all this damage from the steroids. So the, as I was home, because I had osteoporosis, I, I kept breaking bones. I would be getting dressed in the morning, and I'd break a vertebrae in my back. Um, a fractured vertebrae hurts a lot. It's the same thing that Tony Romo had a year ago, but Tony Romo just had one vertebrae fractured. I had six fractured over the course of about three months. Could not stop them. Broke my ribs. Um, and it was, it was about as excruciating as you could possibly imagine. So I also, because those vertebrae broke, they kind of pancaked. And so because of that, I lost three inches in height, and um, the doctors kept doing, I had about five or six procedures where they would insert a liquid cement into my back for those vertebrae that didn't quite pancake to kind of keep them um, straight. So it was one thing after another after another, and I was done with the cancer. The cancer was gone. That worked. But this, this disease that I had called graft-versus-host disease, my brother's the graft, I'm the host, um, really took me about four and a half years to get over. So the lymphoma plus that was about four and a half years. And the losses were significant. You know, I had to resign my job. I uh, had to work through all of our short-term savings, our college fund I had to use to live off of. Then our retirement account was pretty, very much decimated to, to live. And then the physical issues. And so I say all that, that's a short version of the long story. My suffering was basically uh, physical pain and losses associated with that. But suffering is suffering. And so you may be going through something like that, too. You may have a financial struggle that's got no obvious way out. Or you may have a broken relationship, maybe a girlfriend you thought you'd marry. And also, you may be in the wrong job. That's, a, that's suffering. You could be employed, unemployed for way longer than you thought. And you're having trouble with your niche. Suffering is suffering, and the thing about suffering is that your future seems really bleak, and uh, it's hard to enjoy life sometimes, and you're always carrying it around. It's the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night. It's the first thing you think about in the morning, and it's frightening. So there was a, a time in, in this progression of suffering for me when I got that graft-versus-host disease and had to go back to the hospital. I remember, you know, the doctor said, this is going to be a long stay, and it's going to be very, very rough. And so I remember I emailed, I was wondering, what does God want from me in times of suffering? What, what am I supposed to be doing? And so I emailed Skip Ryan and said, can you just give me a couple tips of what I should be doing? What does God want from me? And instead of answering me by email, he came to the hospital. And sat down with my wife Beth and me and went through a very detailed explanation of Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And it's on your handout. Um, and let me read it to you. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He said at one point, Beth and Jay, start looking for all the ways that God is pouring his love into your hearts. 
And we did. We started looking around and we saw it everywhere that God was quite evident in his intervention. But if this passage in Romans is true about our sufferings um, producing endurance and character and hope, what does that mean about how we should pray? And it was a great help to me to know that this verse shows us that God has purpose in suffering and that we're going somewhere. When he is superintending our suffering, it is going somewhere. Pagans cannot say that. We can. And so it's God-ordained, it's got great purpose in it, and it's meant to change me and change you. That's what this verse says. It's got great purpose and it's meant to change us. Now, we sometimes get it backwards and think when suffering comes, it's God's main job to remove it. That's not what this Romans 5 says, is it? God actually uses our suffering. Paul Tripp, the great author and speaker, said, suffering isn't just an obstacle to God's plan. It is God's plan. It's where he takes us to where we never would have chosen and makes us into a man that we never could have become on our own. That's what he does. Suffering is very important and and is God's plan for us. Now, how do we know that's true? Well, this, this passage says there's a progression of growth. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So something's going on here. I watched this happen to me. This suffering produces endurance is the first step. I got to tell you, I learned how to be very uncomfortable for long periods of time without flipping out. It's it's hard to do. I had gruesome procedures, like seven or eight spinal taps and biopsies into my gut with needles this long and um, abdominal pain you would not believe. And being in the same room in the hospital, the same bed in the hospital for so long. And and even when I got home, I had to lie on my couch or my bed in agony for all day, day after day. It was really something. But I got a lot of endurance from that. I changed. And I started to notice that God didn't want me to fight him. He wanted me to yield to him. There was a plan underway. I didn't know what it was. But yielding was very, very important. So I I just did everything I could. I tried to stay close to him. At one point, I couldn't really read. And Pat Hoban came over to my house and just read me scripture. He sat right by my bed and just read scripture to me. It was like a cool drink of water. I had another neighbor that did that for me, too. would just come over and they'd just read, and I would soak it up. And so that's how you start to change. Our, Our suffering is sanctification underway, and sanctification is synergistic, meaning we're supposed to participate with the Lord. Now, that's different from salvation. Salvation is a one-way act of God. We bring nothing to the table. It's monergistic. But sanctification is synergistic. We are supposed to participate, and God wants us to in this process of making suffering become endurance, and endurance becoming character, and character becoming hope. So, Again, how do I pray during that? I yield all the time. That's how I would pray. I would yield. I'd pray for the ability to withstand this, to make me strong enough for this trial that God had given me. And I prayed for a new appetite of instead of wanting what I want, I wanted what God wanted. I also prayed thanking him for the purpose undergirding the suffering. 
for the purpose undergirding it. And I asked him to show me ways that he was pouring his love into our hearts. I told him how I was hurting. And I even, sometimes, because I'm kind of ADD at times, I think praying is hard for me. And so I would get my journal out and I would write my prayers. It helped a lot when I was fuzzy in my, in my brain. After a while, I just found myself enduring. And my, even though my body wasn't really getting better, my endurance was getting better. I was changing. I was changing, just like the Bible said. And then for character, I, there's too much to talk about and all the things that happened to me, but my character, men, is so different than it was um, six years ago. I mean, my marriage is way different. Um, I, f- I found out through this process in suffering, God revealed a lot of sin patterns and wrong values that were going on in my life. I, I was detached from my children, and I was um, detached from my wife in certain ways. I had... I had a desire to die for most of that time because I just I wanted the insurance money for my family, which is a stupid way to think um, that my my family didn't need me as much as they needed insurance money. But that's how I was thinking, and all those things got changed. I I was a lot more cynical, and this process also fixed. I I had from a, a small child. I always kind of had this feeling that I wasn't really loved, kind of had this hole in my heart, and this process fixed that. I don't have time to tell you all about that, but this is, these are examples of God taking our suffering, giving us endurance, and then once we have a new endurance, changes our character, changes our heart. It's really amazing, and it's true. It is true, just like the Bible says it is. Um, and then I got a new hope. And this is a hope that Paul says does not put us to shame. In other words, it works. This is the hardest thing when you're suffering is to have an, a hope, a new hope. And my future seemed bleak, but my hope changed very dramatically to hope in him, not in my circumstances. So this hope for a renewed life is the same thing that Job talks about. Look in your handout. There's just a single verse I wanted to show you. Job 23.10. This is Job talking about God. And he says, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. It's a changed life, men. That's what gold is. A gold, the gold that comes out of suffering is not just relief from the suffering. It's change that's so special and so unique that it gives us a new life. The question is, what do you want? If you were in a a stage of suffering, what would you rather have? A fix to your circumstances, whatever it is, or a changed life, a new character, endurance, character, and hope? Which would you pick? Sometimes we think, you know, God, don't sanctify me. Just give me a normal life. Don't sanctify me. Just make sure my kids turn out right. Don't bother building godly endurance in me. Just give me a good career and a business that works. Forget giving me a lasting hope, Lord. Just protect my financial position. If you had to choose between one or the other, a fixed year circumstances or a changed life, what would it be? It's an important question to ask. I wanted so much for my circumstances to get fixed. Now, years later, 
you know, I'm still kind of dealing with that. I, our, we are financially vulnerable now because of all those expenses and no income for four and a half years. And I wanted so much for God to fix that. And what, I was, what I've noticed in the last year or so is that instead of fixing that, the Lord has been bringing to mind areas in my life that I never thought about before, new areas of sin in my past, sin patterns in my present, um, bringing to mind ways I have hurt people, um, several different things. And, and what's happened is that I've, I haven't been defeated by those things. God gently revealed them like he does. I am, though, so grateful that God didn't give up on me. And I tell you, I had wanted God to fix the financials. Instead, he fixed my character. And I got to say, in my weak moments, I'll think, gee, God, thank you for saving my life, for making me, giving me a new endurance, for giving me a whole new character. Thank you so much. But I really would have rather had my money replaced rather have the cash. In my weakest moments, I'll do that. I don't stay there very long anymore. I used to. I don't. I really do. If I had to choose between getting all my money back and a changed life, I'll pick the changed life for sure. I am so different. I have a hope now. I have a new endurance. And then I just, I just implore you to think about that for yourself. What would you rather have? Sometimes you don't have to choose one or the other, but, but what would you rather have? It's an important thing. That gold is what life is. You know, being low on money won't ruin your life, but a false god will. So Job said, when he tried me, I shall come out as gold. And some people will say, you know, Jay, I want what you've been given. I really do. But I don't want to have to go through what you did to get it. And I would say, actually, I think you would. If you had gone through what I went through and seen the change that the Lord had done in you, you, would, you wouldn't blink an eye. You'd say, I'd do it again. You really would. You can't buy a new life like that and a, and a comfort and a hope. All right, we're going on to the next passage. Oh, just the principle, just to kind of wind all that up on your handout. Principle one is, during your suffering, pray for a changed life. A changed life, that's what you can pray for. Endurance, character, and hope. Look for the ways God is pouring his love into your heart. All right. Jacob, in the Old Testament, was losing all of his hope. Um, we're picking up right in the midstream of this story, but the, the brothers had already sold Joseph into slavery, you might remember, and, um, and he had become prime minister of Egypt. And uh, his brothers had come to Egypt to buy grain, and you'll recall that Joseph turned them away and said, go, go and bring your remaining brother back. And so they had to somehow go back to Jacob, their father, and convince him to give up his precious Benjamin and bring him back to Egypt. And it was too much for Jacob to hear. And here's where we pick it up in Genesis 42, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, 
Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So Jacob is saying, All is against me. You ever been there? And, And God has got no provision for me in this. Jacob is despondent. He's full of unbelief that God will not come for him. And, you know, it's easy to become kind of a functional deist, thinking, you know, God's interested in saving me, but as far as intervening in my day-to-day life, maybe not so much. Jacob had probably gone to that point. But at that very moment, think about it, at the very moment that Jacob was saying, all, all is going wrong. It's like my, my world is over, my life is over. Nothing is working out. At that very moment, we know, because we've read the story, Joseph was alive. And Simeon was, although being held in Egypt, was being taken care of by his brother. And, and Jacob was, Jacob's sons were about to save this whole part of the world. We're about to go through that. So my point here, men, is is that Jacob had no way of knowing that stuff was going on. He just, it wasn't that he was dense. He had no way of knowing. That's the same as you and me. When we think there's no way out, God's got no provision for me, God's not acting anymore, not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. There are things happening that you have no idea. You have no way of knowing. And that's how the Lord works. He keeps on intervening for us. Pagans cannot say that. Believers can. So we can kind of get the benefit of that. When I was uh, in the hospital, in my worst parts, I was thinking like Joseph. I kind of had the fog of the pain, and I thought, I guess God's not going to help me. Maybe salvation is all God had for me, which would be enough. But so I started reading the scriptures. I read narratives. I read the life of David in First and Second Samuel. I read um, Joshua. I read um, a couple others, and, and I started in those narratives, underlining wherever I saw God intervening, and it was all over the place. I had read Mark's all over my Bible, and so I could just kind of open the page and kind of scan it and be reminded, oh yeah, that's what you're like, God. That's what you're like. You're like, you're patient. You are strong. You are understanding, and, and so... A funny thing happened when I was reminded of who God was. When I, because I remember I couldn't remember what He was like exactly, but I started reading the Scripture. And when I remembered who God was, the other questions I had about why this was happening to me, when was it going to be over, would I live, would I ever see my house again, those questions um, really started to go away because I knew him. I knew the who, and because I knew the who, the why, what, when, where, really faded because I knew him. I could trust him because I knew what he was like. I tell you, Job had the same experience. Remember how Job drove him crazy that he didn't know why this was happening. And and he He didn't lose his faith, but it just drove him nuts that he didn't know why, why, why. He just begged for an opportunity to be with the Lord, and finally the Lord spoke to him. And did the Lord tell him why? Did he explain the whole thing with Satan in the very first chapter? No, he just showed Job who he was through acts of nature. 
the big things, the little things, the hidden things. He showed Job all that. And when he was done talking, remember what Job said? It's on your handout. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job had the same experience I did, or I had the same experience Job did, that, that when I saw him, I didn't have to ask why. I didn't have to ask when, how, because I knew him. And I could trust him. He's that big. He's that good. So the principle number three is that when you know the who, insistence on the why, when, how will fade. Peace and joy are found in praying and rehearsing God's attributes, not seeking additional information. So there's finally one other way to pray when you're suffering. And I remember when I was... uh, trying to get over all this, and years had gone by. A friend of mine wrote me an email, and he gave me, he said, here, Jay, are some psalms of lament, um, complaints. And sometimes they'll kind of give voice to your frustration. And I thought, that's one thing I don't really need. You know, I said, I, I'm not really mad at God. I, I said, you know, I've already, I've already rehearsed the truth that God is 100% accurate. He never makes a mistake. So and it's a part of his plan, and I'm changing, and I'm good. It's a very Presbyterian. And, but what was happening was, I wasn't being honest with God, and there was an element missing. When, when you just decide that you're not going to be honest with the Lord and give a lament, things start to wane with your relationship with God. Now, Psalms of Lament, there are about 150 Psalms, and 50 of them are Psalms of Lament. Lament means to mourn deeply or to complain or to express sorrow. So you wail and protest, those kinds of things are what prayers of lament are meant to do. And in the modern Western world, we've kind of lost that practice of lamenting. In the ancient Hebrew world, they were constantly in God's face all the time. Children are natural lamenters. And and so he wants us to go ahead and say, you know, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? Those are the kind of things that God wants to hear. And so let's look at one example. I've given you Psalm 142, just because it's really short. And let's look at a psalm of lament. It begins, just the first two verses kind of outlines his own prayer. He says, with a voice, with my voice, I cry after the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So, okay, he's saying, I'm going to cry out and I'm going to pour out my complaint. I'm going to tell my trouble to God and I'm going to plead for mercy. That's his plan. Okay, now let's read the rest. Verse three, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Okay, so what he's doing here is he's he's saying his reality. This stinks. This does not make sense. I thought you were different, Lord. 
And so he gives, he, he first does that, he laments, but then he also rehearses, rehearses the truth about who God is at the same time. He'll say his complaint, but he'll also have to acknowledge who God really is. And then he just asks. The third thing is that he asks, this is what I need. So you can see that pattern in this psalm and every other psalm of lament. It's the same thing. The reality is, you know, they've hidden a trap for me. No one, no one takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I am brought very low. Okay. We can do that too. We, we can say that to the Lord. But then he also gives the truths about God. When my spirit faints away within me, you know my way. You are my refuge, my portion. You will deal bountifully with me. So, and then he, said, then he gives his requests. He says, attend to my cry, deliver me from my persecutors. They're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. So, that reality is how we do this. Is give your reality to the Lord. This doesn't make sense. Seeming inconsistencies, say them. And then talk about the truths, the attributes about God, and then ask him for what you want. That's a great way to pray. Just being stoic moves us away from God. It leads to unbelief, and it leads to cynicism, to stay quiet. And your relationship with the Lord will ebb away. Instead, lament. When you lament, it gives relationship to your to your Lord with you. It pushes you into his presence, and God is going to sanctify your lamenting. Sometimes it's hard to pray when we're suffering. There were times where I was so miserable, it's all I could do is pray. There are other times, though, where I strangely felt cold and cynical and couldn't pray very well. You need to understand what's going on in both cases. I'll end with this. There was um, one time I was in the hospital. After, after Skip Ryan had come, one of the last things he said was, he said, be creative with your suffering. He said, Imagine, as you're suffering, imagine Jesus on the cross suffering for you. Just put that in your mind and imagine that to be true. Um, a few days went by, and I really had reached the, probably the lowest point, and I just really didn't think I could go on. And Beth, my wife, was with me, and it was the end of the day, and I was just telling her, I just don't think I can do this. The pain was so bad. It was going on so long. I just said, I just... I kind of was saying I wanted to die. I didn't sit, use those words, but I said, I just can't do it anymore. And she, she left a little disturbed, and she went down to the lobby on her way out to the car. And in to the hospital was John Bateman, my friend John. And Beth said that as soon as she saw John, she just burst into tears. And there they were in the lobby of St. Luke's, hugging, and John was holding my wife as she sobbed. And then John came up and, and ministered to me. And then it was still a hard day, and it got to be 10.30 at night, and my oncologist came in the room, and he said, you know, I just he's a believer, and he said, I just kind of had a prompting from the Holy Spirit to come see you. And so we talked about death, and we talked about um, clinging to the Lord, and he said, you know, one thing I would just suggest is that as you're lying in your bed suffering, think about the Lord Jesus on the cross suffering for you. I thought, so, man, this is an example of God intervening 
and helping us and pouring his love into our hearts when we're suffering and the fact that you are going somewhere as this is going on. All right, I think I'm out of time. Um, Pat, you want to say anything before? Okay, so let's just pray and we'll go to our tables. Lord God, we are afraid of suffering, but you have shown us that you are doing something for us. You are taking us somewhere. You're giving us a new endurance, a new character, and a new hope. Give us the courage to participate in this with you. Give us the courage to change. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.